Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that usually takes a month-by-month look at the Billboard Modern Rock charts. I'm your host, Will Westerkow. For those listeners who are just joining us, the show is currently between seasons. Last episode, we wrapped up 1992, and 1993 is coming soon. In the meantime, I thought we could do something a little different. So today, I'm going to be spotlighting one specific band whom I discovered through my research for the show. This is a band that recorded an incredible body of work, but who has not received nearly the amount of recognition that I think they deserve. To kick things off, let's listen to our mystery achievement. Here's a rare track that was one of the band's first releases, and which wouldn't be a mystery to Kurt Cobain, who listed it in his diary as one of his all-time favorite songs. Here it is. Trying to sleep at night can be a chiller. Last night was the most. That song is called You're Not Patsy, and the band is Big Dipper. They were formed in 1985 in Boston, Massachusetts, and the classic lineup consisted of Bill Gaufrier, Gary Wallach, Steve Michener, and Jeff Oliphant. Today we're going to be running through the band's entire career, from their first EP to their final reunion album, listening to songs along the way. Here to help me do that is Big Dipper guitarist slash vocalist Gary Wallach. Hi Gary, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Will. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Is guitarist slash vocalist a good description? Yeah, it's 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 a fine description. Uh, to, for the record, I played drums on some songs and bass on a song or two and little keyboards on something, too. So, But uh, yeah, guitar and singing, occasional lead, usually background. That was my wheelhouse. Okay, great. I guess prior to Big Dipper, you and Steve Michener were in a band called the Volcano Sons in Boston. Yep. It seems like you guys left the band prior to the first album coming out. Did you play on the first album? No. So the the, the um, condensed history is that Steve and I were big Michener Burma fans. We went to a lot of shows and we saw Burma quite a bit. And we went to their, what was then their last show in March of 83, at the Bradford Ballroom in in Boston. And actually, we traveled down to Staten Island, I think it was, to see them play there as well. And I remember walking away from the Bradford Ballroom show and saying to Steve, we could do this. And we had already been in a couple of bands that weren't so great the year before. And we were looking for something a little better. And uh, Steve and I had read in the Boston Phoenix, I believe it was, in the classified section an ad for bandmates and it was clearly coded language from Peter. It was obvious to us. And so we responded, Peter had someone running interference who we later learned was the drummer in a great band called busted statues. His name was Michael Mooney and he was asking us questions. And I guess Steve passed the test and we got an audition and, um, I guess it went well enough so that Peter chose us over this other group of guys that he was also kind of auditioning. So we only did that for a year and a half. It was not the most pleasant experience in the world. I mean, here I was 20 years old and I was in a band with one of my musical heroes. So I thought, oh, this is great. But I wasn't quite ready for that at that time. 
I was a full-time student. I had a couple of jobs. I was living with an aunt who had a terminal medical condition, and I just felt like I couldn't focus on that completely. And I was also a young, stupid, ambitious man and couldn't express that very well either. So it was very frustrating, and it's kind of a sad thing that the band kind of fell apart at around the time that we started getting good. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we recorded a bunch of stuff in the studio, and five or six of those songs are just like great performances, and they've never seen the light of day. And there are versions of songs that predated versions of songs that were on um, Bright Orange Years and All Night Lotus Party. So that was kind of tough, especially since the lineups that followed were better than we were live anyway. And it was we felt like we had kind of missed an opportunity. But not long after that, Steve had a stint with Dump Truck, which he really enjoyed. And uh, I started hanging out with Bill Gaffrier on his porch and uh, talking about music and just hanging out and not really wanting to be too ambitious. But we started listening to music. And before long, we started writing a couple tunes. And I think the first song was She's Fetching. And we were like, well, this is pretty good. <laughs> Maybe we should record stuff. Tomorrow draws his breath in, And then he heaves a sigh Because tonight he's sailing Against a choppy She may not know it now But if she finds out And that sort of got that snowball rolling down the mountain. And Bill Gaffrier, he was in a band called The Embarrassment. They were from Wichita, Kansas. Yes. Was he out in Boston for school? He was a grad student at the Boston University School of Art. He's a painter. Funny thing, I was I worked at a drugstore with his girlfriend, and she knew that I, I was a musician. And she says, oh, my boyfriend's a musician. He's from Kansas. You should meet him. And I'm thinking, yeah, sure, that'd be great. Guy from Kansas. I'm thinking like a guy in a bar band or a cover band or maybe the band Kansas or something. And I wasn't really interested. Yeah. And uh, after a few days, I said, what was the name of his band? She said, The Embarrassment. And I'm like, whoa. I was a big, big Embarrassment fan at the time. So I'm like, well, we should meet. And actually, at the time, I was still in Volcano Sun, so he came out to see us play. I don't think he was too impressed, but it was nice to meet him. And um, not long after, we're sort of hanging out. And he's five years older than I am. So, you know, at that point, he's 28, I think, maybe 29, closing in on 29. And he wasn't really looking to be in a band. He was looking to launch his art career. Hmm. But we started playing, and I introduced him to Steve and Jeff, the drummer. We started playing in Jeff's mom's basement, and there was an immediate chemistry, both personally and musically, that we just we stuck with and got better and better and better. We started writing more songs, and we're like, well, these songs are really good. And we recorded a bunch. We sent them to our mutual friend Gerard Cosloy in New York. He was running co-running Homestead Records. He was a big fan of Volcano Sons, and we knew him. And he responded by sending us a contract in the mail, totally unsolicited. 
we didn't really even have a name for the band at the time, I think. So we had to fill in the name of the band on the contract. And so all of a sudden, we're getting a contract offer from the hippest, coolest label in the whole country. And we're like, well, what do we do? We're like, okay, let's put out an EP and see what happens. It probably won't go far. But, you know, if we want to do an album, we can do another couple albums if we want to, which is, of course, what we did. Yeah. And so in 1987, the band released their first EP called Boo Boo. I seem to remember like there being dozens of name candidates and someone had come up with Boo Boo because the whole thing was just sort of a mistake from the beginning. I mean, we weren't really pursuing this and here we are playing these. Our first show ever was opening for the Mekons at the Rat on a Saturday night. We didn't have to do like the, you know, Tuesday new music night sort of route. And we had a recording contract and radio stations were playing us all over the place even before Boo Boo came out. So we're like, this is a big mistake. It's a boo-boo. And like, okay, boo-boo's kind of cool, but like, how do we work that into the the theme of the album with a picture or whatever's on the cover? And I mm-hmm. had a picture of my great-great-grandfather, who um, was a hunter, as were all the men from Western Maine back in the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. The picture was of my great-grandfather, with a bunch of bears that he had killed and was planning to slaughter and serve to the family. So uh, that's the story of the cover there. Did uh, Hanna-Barbera come calling? (laughs) (laughs) No, they didn't, which is kind of amazing, because around the same time there was a band, well, they were called Wild Kingdom. They ended up being the Zulus, which is a pretty pretty big band from Boston. And um, they actually were approached by Wild Kingdom, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, that said... Sorry, guys. Nope. Here's a little money. Go find another name. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to hear what I believe is the only single released off of Boo Boo. This is called Faith Healer. So like you said, Faith Healer was getting college radio play. You made a video for it that got some MTV exposure. Yeah, so Faith Healer is an interesting story. I mean, it's an embarrassment song mm-hmm. that hadn't been released on any embarrassment record to that point. And their version of it, which was great, was a slow, like, chilling horror song. And I thought, well, this is awesome. It's got a great guitar riff. It's got an amazing chorus, very catchy. But at the same time, it's kind of horrifying. So I I like the juxtaposition, but let's play it fast. Let's play it really fast. And it just like clicked immediately. We recorded it. Back in those days, the Boston radio scene was amazing. There were like four or five college stations, and there were two or three commercial stations that were playing more than their share of what were called local bands. And we started getting a lot of airplay right away with that. We were like the song of the year on WMBR. 
beating out the cave dogs tater country, by the way. Mm. Oh, yeah. And uh, we, we were sort of the, the Beatles to their stones, or maybe they were the Beatles to our stones or whatever. But yeah, that goes on the, the EP, and that starts getting airplay. And we start realizing we're getting airplay not just on college stations, but we're starting to get some inroads on commercial stations, too which was kind of nice because we, we liked our songs. We felt they were fairly catchy. You know, right from the beginning, we were very encouraged because uh, we were writing and recording these songs that were getting airplay, and we were playing really great shows. Yeah. So I guess 1987 was a pretty busy year for Big Dipper because after Boo Boo was released, you also released your first full-length album, Heavens. So Boo Boo comes out in March of 1987. We go on our first tour, which was very fun. That summer, we record Heavens, and Heavens comes out in October. And then we're touring pretty much nonstop from October of 1987 to really it ended up being, I guess, August of 1990. It seems like a short time when I think of it now, but I believe for those years we were playing an average of 250 shows a year wow that's a lot it's ridiculous yeah (laughs) yeah so we're gonna hear a song from heavens called all going out together All right, so my understanding with this one is that it's it was a fairly collaborative piece with the band, but that Steve Michener brought in the chorus after a dream in which he he heard Bruce Springsteen singing this part. Is that is that right? That is true, and we started playing it like a Ramon song, like with bar chords and really fast, all going out together, all going out together, and at one point we slowed it down and. Bill and Steve started working on the lyrics. They had just seen Blue Velvet, and that was a big influence. And so they started coming up with these great lyrics. And I started working on, as is my want, I started uh, deconstructing the chords. It didn't feel right to do as like, uh, you know, a bar chord, Ramones kind of thing. So I started playing with some open chords and inversions, and I came up with a variation in the in the chorus that really opened the chorus up in what I thought was a really interesting way. And the the guys ended up agreeing with me. And it was one of those songs that just happened in no time flat. You know, we were just working at peak creative efficiency. You know, Steve shows the idea. Bill starts fleshing out the lyrics with Steve. We slow the, the whole thing down a lot, and it's still pretty fast, but all of a sudden all the, the various harmonic possibilities are presenting themselves, and I hear them, and I change the chords a little bit, and then Bill and I start harmonizing, and it's like, boom, song. Couldn't have taken more than 20 minutes, a half an hour, and that didn't happen often enough for us. Yeah, but it's nice when it does. Yeah. Did you finish that song up and go... This is the single? I don't think so, because we were working on a lot of other songs at the time, including She's Fetching, although that was probably further along at that point, Lunar Module, 
Man of War. And we were equally jazzed about all of them at the time. We were very energized in the studio, and we were under a sort of a time crunch because we only had $2,000 to do the record. Mm. And uh, I believe the recording studio we were using at the time charged about 35 an hour. Sounds like you have a lot of money to do a record, but it, it's amazing how fast things go and how yeah. quickly your budget gets eaten up. So we were, we knew the songs really well, so we were able to do really nice live relatively spontaneous versions of the songs in the studio. I think we really only had a feeling about the songs and what they were and how good they were after we recorded them for Heavens. One of the things that really stands out to me in a lot of Big Dipper songs, and one of the things I really love is the harmonies that are present, uh, especially on a lot of choruses. Was that something that just came naturally? Was that Did that take a lot of practice? The harmonies, a lot of people think that Bill and I had a very interesting and unique sound. And uh, I think that's true. Bill worked on his singing a lot harder than I did, which I regret now. I don't regret him working hard on his singing. He took lessons and he, he, became, he went from being a good singer to being, in my opinion, one of the great rock singers of all time. I think he's great. With me, I, I would have benefited from lessons. But what I had was an ear for harmony and arrangement. And that worked really well for us because here we, we had this great lead singer. He had a very high range, and I didn't have that range. But I could always hear the lower harmony, which isn't done a lot. Beatles did it a lot. Not a lot of bands who have the harmony part come in lower than the lead vocal part. And that, that was part of the distinctiveness of our vocal sound. The other part was Bill sings ever so slightly sharp. Hmm. And I sing maybe a little bit more than ever so slightly flat. And when you combine the two, they don't cancel each other out. That would have been great. That would have been like, you know, auto-tune before auto-tune. Yeah. But what happens is it's like um, there are a couple songs on Talking Heads' Fear of Music where they purposely detune the bass. Mm -hmm. And it's just off enough so that it really grabs your ear. Like, what is that? And I think that's what Bill and I had going with our harmonies. I think it's it's really on in some ways, but it's just off enough so that people go, wow, that sounds cool, maybe? <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. One thing I think I will mention about the lyrics of All Going Out Together is the first couple times I listened to it, I thought it was about, uh, I don't know, a bunch of pals hanging out and just having a good time. But you listen to it a few times and you realize there's something a little more sinister there. Bill and Steve had seen Blue Velvet. I don't think I'd seen it at that point, or maybe I had. There's a scene where Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan are in a car outside a church and they're kissing and there's like a an audio pun. There's the sound of a swelling organ. A little crude, but kind of clever. Sure. And they thought that that was funny. So they put the line, the organ swells and I begin to pray in there. But it's really about an apocalypse. And I think the interesting thing about the song as with so many of our better songs, it's a combination of beautiful melody and harmony, and in some cases, very beautiful lyrics as well. But it's uh, all those things are juxtaposed with a sort of dark foreshadowing and the view that a lot of humans, if not all humans, 
all have some very dark sides and we're all wrestling with some really evil things. Those ideas are there in the song, just maybe not presented as overtly as a lot of bands of the era might have done. All right, well, cool. So I guess after Heavens, moving on to 1988, your next album was called Craps. Yep. And there's a what a casino on the cover. Yep. Steve recently did a post about that where he he had this guy with a really really expensive five of a kind Polaroid camera take snapshots of his lousy Kodak snapshots and blow them up and he presented them to Bill and Bill started painting them hmm. and made this sort of alternate version of Las Vegas with hotel free money and craps on one of the the marquee signs. Nice. So Craps, this is also released on Homestead, I believe. And we're going to hear the single Meet the Witch. First of all, one thing I wanted to ask about this is the liner notes in Supercluster said that a music video was made for this song, but never released. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so Big Dipper never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. We really should have done a video for Ron Klaus Rechter's house, which, like, how do, you, how do you mess that up? It would have been perfect, right? Sure. But we were told... And we believed that there would be more than one single from the record and there may be more than one video. So we're like, let's lead with Meet the Witch and follow with Ron Klaus Rector's House. It was a bad decision. I like the song very much, but we laid out some cash to make this video for Meet the Witch with a woman who's now a very successful independent filmmaker named Kelly Reichardt. We decided Bill should storyboard it since he was the artist, so he did. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this typically oblique sort of approach to the song where it would have to do with like all these, like a young woman in a New York apartment, and all, there are all these signs and omens. And then she gets to her kitchen one night, she cuts a melon open, and in the middle of that melon, there was supposed to be a beating heart. And that was going to be the big climactic moment. I kind of wondered whether we should be doing this at all because it seemed weird to me, but whatever. That's art. It's art. <laughs> Bill's an artist. Yeah. He knows better than I do. I like art films, so maybe it'll work out. Yeah. So we, we're in New York one weekend, I guess, and we go to our manager's office, and he's got a copy. He's got a VHS copy of it. We'd never seen it. And I pops it in. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll meet the witch video. It's great. The Faith Healer video we made for a shoestring budget and actually got a few plays on MTV. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So it goes through the story. The woman gets to her apartment. 
she cuts open the melon and she's got this look of horror on her face and there's just juice everywhere and it's supposed to be horrifying. But she opens the melon and there's nothing inside the melon. It's an empty shell or it's just a watermelon? It's just what you would see in the middle of a melon. It was like a cantaloupe and there are all these seeds. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, she's reacting like it's a scene from The Exorcist or something. Yeah. And it just ended up being so utterly absurd that we decided, you know, we don't want to be made the figure of fun in video world and MTV world. So we're not going to we're not going to release it. So somebody has it. I had a copy of it for years and I ended up sending all of my tapes to this guy in Kansas. So I believe uploaded it somewhere. I can't remember the name of this website now, but he's archived like every Big Dipper video live performance that anyone has ever had. But it's out there somewhere if people really, really want to watch it. Okay. That's good to know. I was going to ask about that, but apparently I just need to dig deeper into the internet. Yeah, I can get you that web address at some point. Sure, that'd be great. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me about the choice of singles. I I love Meet the Witch. I think it's really good. I think, just in terms of songs, I think I prefer it over Ron Klaus, but also I, I recognize that Ron Klaus wrecked his house maybe sounds more like the kind of single that might immediately grab listeners and it's the kind of song that, I, I don't know, it, it makes me think of some very specific bands and some very specific songs that were sizable hits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not in 1988 necessarily, but, you know, in, in some years to follow. Yeah. Well, it would have been a great video. I mean, now I'm kind of kicking myself. You know, I'm a, I did some record producing and some radio producing, and I'm an editor, and I'm always revising things, and I even go back and try to revise some Big Dipper lyrics, and I think mm-hmm. we missed an opportunity to tell a better story in Ron Klaus wrecked his house. Some of the lyrics are a little oblique, but also we have, there's a really long intro, a really long outro, and a really long middle section that don't do a lot, so I would have streamlined the song and pushed it and bolstered the lyrics and pushed it as the single for the song with a good video that just would have been unbelievable. Not that I like videos. I I hated the whole MTV thing, to be honest, but that was sort of the, the ocean we were swimming in at the time. Yeah. And I I mean, I think that makes sense. A tightened up version of Ron Klaus. I can imagine that would have got quite a bit of play at the time. He had his so we thought this should be where the story ends. Run fast, his house down in the street. Run fast, he wrecked his So, I mean, was that just strictly the record label? They're like, too bad, Meet the Witch didn't do what we wanted it to do, and you don't get any money for another single? I'm not exactly sure. I mean, at the time, there were tensions between us and Homestead, because we were touring relentlessly. And I think we had bankrolled both videos. And we were going to various cities and towns and going to the record stores, and our records weren't in the bins. And we're like, well... Not to disparage any of the other bands on the label, but they're not touring the way we are. You know, they're not kind of cracking 
the radio charts in in quite the way we are. Yeah, Sonic Youth, but you know there are other bands that felt to me like they were doing it more as a hobby than anything, and we took it very seriously. And so we were very frustrated. In retrospect, I mean, I think Homestead is one of the best things that ever happened to us because it gave us an instant listenership, and we didn't appreciate that as much as we should have, and we should have sort of circumvented the bad relationship that their leadership had with our leadership and made nice and continued with that, which they offered to do. They offered us an astonishingly large advance for a record after craps for a single record, but we didn't take it. And we instead went on to flirt with uh, some of the big labels. Right. Which takes us, I guess, to the next album. The next album was 1990s Slam, and that was released on a major label, Epic Records. That's uh, that's your biggest break between records right there. Is that the result of just more time in the studio? I mean, the, the reason there was a delay was because we weren't sure who which record company we would be working with. The um, overtures started coming in 89, months after Craps came out. And it was clear we weren't going to be working with Homestead anymore. So it took a while to figure out which label to go with. I mean, IRS was in the mix. Bar None was in the mix. Uh, there might have been another one that I'm not remembering about. But yeah, it took a while to sort all of that out and then write more material and record it. And actually, Slam was supposed to come out in October of 1990, not in April. We were being pressured very hard. By the label, once they started hearing some of the demos, they thought that there were like six hits on the record, and they were planning on making us sort of the breakout band of the 90s, which is absurd in retrospect. I never believed it, but a lot of people were telling us at the time and leading up to that that there were a lot of people who thought that we were going to be the big breakout band. You know, the time was ripe for a band coming up from the indie ranks and just blowing the world away and of course we all know who that ended up being it was nirvana but uh i never really thought big dipper had that in them i don't think we had that sort of appeal but yeah anyway we signed with epic we rush a record out it was not recorded the way it needed to be recorded and it just has a stale kind of dead feel to it a lot of songs are great some of them are not and it just didn't do well. All kinds of internal stuff happened at Epic. Like the week that record came out, there were firings and quitting and all kinds of stuff. And all of a sudden, we had nobody pushing our stuff. And we did a, a huge, extensive tour in the summer. It was a disaster. You know, we had alienated our grassroots fans and we had failed to pick up any new ones. So it was over. When you say you alienated your grassroots fans, was that strictly by virtue of going to a major label, do you think? Or did it have more to do with the sound of the record? Uh, probably both to a certain degree, but also the fact that, you know, you can't rest on your laurels. You can't say, well, Heavens was great. You still should listen to us. By this time, there are a lot of bands, new bands for people to listen to. And if you're not living up to their expectations, they're going to drop you for better or worse. They're going to drop you. And that's what happened. I mean, it was a sad situation, mainly because I would say that for the years we were doing this, it always felt like Steve, Bill, 
Jeff and I were more like brothers than like bandmates. And by this point, you know, we weren't really talking very much and kind of living in our own worlds. And occasionally there was a little bit of hostility, nothing too bad, thank God. But, you know, it was not fun. And it was fun. It was That's the reason we did it from the beginning was because it was fun. We enjoyed it. We were doing something differently than other bands were doing and we were enjoying it and if if 500 people came to see us at a show great if 20 people came to see us at a show great we know we're good we know what we're doing but at this point it's like bill's 30 steve's almost 30 i'm 26 jeff's three years younger than me four years younger than me so it just it wasn't going to go forever and this was a good this this was a definitive end to the the original lineup do you know at what point you realized that was it after the record came out and didn't sell as well as it was expected to or before you even went into the studio because i guess one thing i'm curious about is you know you mentioned the production on this album and it's not what it should have been and i guess i'm curious like how much was that the record label just pushing a producer on you maybe and dictating how it should sound and how much of that was like a tired band who had toured too much and needed a rest? It wasn't the producer. The producer was fun to work with, collaborative. He was a very, very good engineer. I don't think he quite had the qualities that we needed at that time, which was was to be like, hey, guys, you really don't need a click track. And hey, guys, let's be more spontaneous and hey guys, this part isn't working well and that part is. I liked working with him. I like him personally, but I think we needed someone different at that stage. So he wasn't pushing anything on us. That record is the way we wanted it to be at that time. And it was a mistake, but that's what we wanted. We thought we were kind of pushing barriers and boundaries and trying new things with horn sections and keyboards and some more elaborate arrangements but that's not what we needed at that time if you go back and listen to the demo version of life inside the cemetery and compare it to the version of life inside the cemetery on slam there's no comparison we should have released the demo it was great yeah no i i totally agree that's really interesting all right well we're gonna hear a song from the album this is called love barge and here it is Love Barts is the first Big Dipper song I heard, and I had never heard of the band before. I discovered this when I was going through the modern rock charts, working on my podcast and trying to figure out what songs to include in each episode. The first time through, this would have been, I want to say, May 1990, I think I neglected to actually listen to it because I had three songs that month that had hit number one. So they were definitely going to be featured on my show. And then I think there was a number two hit from The House of Love that I really liked. And so uh, I think I didn't even bother listening to the rest of the songs. Thankfully, I came back 
a little while later, and when I heard Love Barge, I was immediately like, whoa, this band sounds exactly like the kind of music I like. And I don't know, do you know the experience where you hear something and you're like, there's no way this is the band's only good song? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I felt. Yeah. So um, I, I liked it enough and I had that feeling and I decided to dig a little deeper and um, I'm really glad I did. No, thank you. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Love Barge. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. What do you want to know? It's, um, it's a pretty simple song, three chords all the way through. We had to convince Bill that it wasn't a dangerous or bad thing to have the same chord progression in the verses in the chorus. It's sort of interesting in that it has three repeating chords, which makes for an uneven number of bars, so that by the time you get around to the one again, it's a different chord. So that presents hmm. sort of a challenge to a melodist, which Bill, being a fantastic melodist, was more than up for the challenge, and he wrote a really nice melody for it. I like the verses. The choruses, I felt, were too simplistic. Steve felt that if we threw the, the term love in the chorus, it was going to be a hit. And turned out that that wasn't the case with Love Barge or with Bells of Love on Craps. So I just felt it was kind of a cop-out. And I'm mad at myself for not agitating to do better with that. But I like the song. I think of all the songs on Slam, it's maybe the most authentic performance for us. Big uh, chugging rhythm guitar and bass in the verses and... Jeff just holding it down with his perfect tempo and, and you know Bill's beautiful voice and and what I really like about it is the really really loud guitars in the middle section and and at the end that was really fun doing those After this album there was one more release before the band broke up and that was a a non-album single called Approach of a Human Being Yeah can you tell me a little bit about that? This was not on Epic. Were you dropped from the label after the one album? Is that what happened? Yeah, so we signed this mega eight-record deal with Epic. We signed it in December of 89, and it called for eight records. And I did the math at some point, totaling up what all the advances would amount to, and it was like three and a half million or something crazy like that. I'm thinking, oh, great. We can yeah. do that. We can make it to that eighth record. <laughs> sure. Of course, you know, it's like a it's like a minor league baseball contract. The option is always with the club and not with the uh with the player. So we mm -hmm. got dropped after one record. It was just a disaster from the beginning. But they strung us along to their eternal discredit for many months and didn't release us from our contract until May of nineteen ninety one at which point Steve had left the band. We had another bass player. Uh, soon thereafter, Jeff left the band. We got another drummer, which is Woody Geisman of The Embarrassment and Del Fuegos. And we were sort of getting back to basics in terms of songwriting, and we were writing great songs, I thought, and doing really interesting recordings, but nobody was interested in putting out another record at all. It was harder to get good gigs. Like, our time had passed. It was clear. And Bill and I stuck it out for another year or so. And it was hard to do because I love Bill and I really love being in a band with him. And But it, it was just like it was too much. We, we weren't really accomplishing anything at that point other than 
something we'd already proved, which was that we were still capable of writing really great songs. It's just that nobody cared anymore. So we gave sure. it up. Bill Bill kept going with a trio called Saucer, which was great. And I sort of went into the world of matrimony and Jewish study and Jewish practice and back to the radio station uh, where I would soon be producing Only a Game, a national sports program for NPR. So I had a lot of a lot of stuff keeping me busy and you know every now and then I'd play the guitar write a song or record it on the little basement recording studio that I had for many years and um that was pretty much um how it all kind of fizzled yeah during this era big dipper's doing a lot of cover songs you know the b-sides to some of the singles it's like beatles and neil young and husker du and uh whatever but I also found a cover of Pichelli's Homo Sapien that yeah. showed up in 1992 on a compilation. You know, it's a song that I really love. I'm a big Buzzcocks and Pichelli fan. And um, I was just curious, like, what that was about. Like, was it recorded specifically for that compilation? Was the band even still a band when that was released? Yes and yes. Okay. We were approached by the guy who was, I guess, the driving force of that compilation. He was our lawyer, actually, asked if we'd do a song. So he started thinking about stuff. And I thought that that record by Pete Shelley was got some play, but it was fairly overlooked. I thought it was a great song. And I uh, just love Pete Shelley as a songwriter. We tried it, and it just kind of clicked. You know, it was, I was playing that ridiculous... It was like a Mutron phaser that shifted the pitch up an octave or two on my guitar and I was trying to emulate what the keyboard was doing in that and I thought it really worked I yeah. like that too Homo superior in my interior but from the skin out I'm Homo sapien too and you're Homo sapien too and I'm Homo sapien like you Like you said, the band broke up following uh, Slam and the and the one single approach of a human being, and then some time passed. And Merge Records wanted to do an anthology. So, when did that come out? Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Yeah. Okay. Early, like what? March of two thousand eight. April two thousand eight. Okay. And did they approach you about that, or were you looking for some venue to get? Big Dipper songs out there and re-released. Well, it's uh, there's a good story behind it. In a way, they approached us. In a way, they didn't. Uh, Mac McCann is a very, uh, in addition to being a, a really fabulous musician and songwriter, is also a very savvy businessman. So he blogged about how it's a shame that Big Dipper has been forgotten and some smart record label should anthologize Big Dipper because there's a lot of great material there. Now, 
I knew that he ran this wonderful label called Merge, and I knew that that was code for, hey, would someone give me a ring? <laughs> so I contacted him, and in 2007, we started talking and sort of figuring out what an anthology would be for us. And for us, it, it made total sense to reissue all the Homestead stuff for which we had the rights. They had all reverted back to us. I had all of the artwork and master tapes, which was a big advantage. Dutch East India, who I'm sure still owe us a lot of royalties. We never saw a penny of royalty money from Homestead. They were sitting on all that stuff in a warehouse. And I sent in a squad of mercenaries who rescued all of the original artwork or most of the original artwork and most of the master tapes, and they brought them to me. So we had all that stuff. It was clear and good to go. We had a whole CD's worth of stuff that people had never heard, mostly. So it made sense to put all the Homestead stuff on the first two CDs with some bonus stuff, and then to give people a full CD's worth of stuff that we did after Slam and the Breakup. Of, of the original lineup. And uh, I thought it made for a very compelling anthology with the, you know, the liner notes from Sharpling and from the four band members and the old pictures and the beautiful artwork that Bill painted special for the cover of that, which is now hanging in our living room. And um, I was very proud of that anthology. And I think it reminded some people that not only were we good, but also that we had some legs, we had some lasting powers that not all of our contemporaries had. And that anthology is called Supercluster. I was going to ask you about the song Wake Up the King, which I think is the first track on disc three of Supercluster. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I wanted to know like when that was written or recorded. That's like post-slam era. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think that that was even an idea until Woody Geisman was in the band, which would have been summer, fall of 91. So we worked that up pretty quickly. Funny lyric about Elvis Presley, of course. It had some lyrics that were scandalous that Bill decided to self-edit. But yeah, that was probably recorded late summer, early fall of 91, something like that. Yeah, that's really interesting because this song, that one and Edith and some other ones I'm not thinking of, like, I don't know, they sound like energized and, and alive in a way that maybe Slam didn't quite feel. So I wasn't sure if they were from an earlier era or not. But For sure you're right that they were more energized, but um, when you say Edith, which is just a superb song written and sung by Jeff, that actually wasn't a Big Dipper recording, to be honest. That wasn't recorded until like 94, 95, when, you know, by which point, you know, the band had been broken up for many years. I was a homeowner and full-time employee, and Jeff decided to start this band called Shoemaker with some of his friends, and they were actually playing some of the local clubs. It was heartbreaking to see that this guy who was in a drummer with what had once been a really hot band was playing to empty houses on a Tuesday night. It was just really heartbreaking. But he was writing these great songs, which I wish he had done <laughs> or had learned to do back when he was in Big Dipper. So anyway, he decides that he wanted to do some recording and said, can you help us out in the studio? 
And, uh, you know, I had done, I produced a bunch of bands and in some ways I was a de facto producer of Big Dipper, although the album credits say otherwise. Not to minimize anything that Sean Slade or Paul Coldery or Lou Giordano contributed, but I was sort of the guy who worked on a lot of the stuff that record producers generally don't. Uh, but I think is producer worthy. Anyway, so I helped him in the studio and ended up playing some guitar on some of the songs. And re he released six songs on a CD, a Shoemaker CD. And in, in 2007, I was talking to Mac McCon of Merge Records and Super Chunk about doing a Dipper anthology. And we were sort of conceptualizing what the third so-called lost CD would be. And I thought it would be great to include at least that song from Shoemaker because it's got me playing guitar on it and it's got Bill singing on it, beautiful tight harmony with Jeff, and it just feels like a Big Dipper song, so we put it on Super Cluster. It's just a oh, it's a great song with a great lyric. I love it. It's a good song. I'll ask you once again Are we family tree or friend? The position I put us into Edith, the question you have said Relates to motorboats instead So bring your brains and strap I'm assuming that because of renewed interest in Big Dipper following the release of the anthology, the band decided to get back together? Yeah, we played, uh, I think it was four or five shows in support of the uh, the release of the anthology, which was fun. And then at the behest of Robert Pollard, we played a year and a half later opening for Boston Spaceships when they were in Boston. And that was really nice. They were great. And he was. it was really nice to meet him. He's a big musical hero of mine. And then just out of the blue in 2013, we were approached by a guy who owned some crazy sports bar in Chicago. And I didn't learn this until later. Apparently, he was a huge fan of the band and had never seen us play live. And he, he lured us to Chicago with a very generous offer for, to play one night. And we did that. We had a lot of fun wasn't the original lineup but you know that's the way it was you know we pl played a handful and a half of shows since the breakup of the original lineup in 1992 and uh they were fun but on the other hand they reminded me of what a pain in the neck touring and playing live shows is and it's a pain in the neck when you're in your 20s it's even worse when you're in your 40s but the band decided to give it some kind of another go because in 2012, Big Dipper released the album Big Dipper Crashes on the Platinum Planet. Yeah, so Bill was Bill and Jeff were still living in Boston or in the Boston area. And, you know, I have a little recording studio in my basement. And I guess we're all at the same time getting a little itchy to write some songs and to maybe record them. And, and we did that. And... Um, we were not sure how that was going to go. You never really know when you drop it for so long and then you try to pick it up again. But uh, right from the beginning, the songs sounded great and they only got better. So we said, eh, you know, let's get together every every few weeks and record the latest songs that are on people's minds. And 
we learned the songs quickly and, and well. We recorded them in my basement, and we found a guy who's willing to put out the record. Uh, so that was that was nice. I'm very proud of that record. Uh, I think it's a very good record. But again, it's like, you know, if we're going to do a record full of great songs for our own purpose and be happy with it, that's that's good. And it was good for that reason, but I just felt like that record got so little attention that it was a little bit heartbreaking, to be honest. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean... It's almost a, a decade past, but let's give it some attention now. Okay. <laughs> I, I do agree. I think it's a very good record. Honestly, it's about as good as you could expect from a band that was 20 years gone and, and reforming You know, after two decades. There's a lot to like there. We're going to hear a song that you wrote called Robert Pollard, named after Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so here it is. This is a really good song. I like this one a lot. Thanks. I guess when when trying to figure out what song I wanted to play from this record, there were a few it could have gone with, but you know, I always really like that sub sub genre of songs where they mention band members by their own name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk about this. But do you want to talk a little bit about it? Uh, why why were Robert Pollard? Well, he's a fascinating character and my favorite songwriter in the rock genre. The, the body of work that he has created, nobody's matched it, in my opinion. I mean, there may be songs that get more airplay and were, will forever get more airplay, and you can make an argument that the Beatles were better or whoever, the Who, or, you know, it's a subjective thing, but I think his body of work is just unparalleled. So I find him to be a fascinating character. My goal was not to write a fanboy kind of song, uh, which it kind of is on the surface, but the goal was to get to the same idea that I think was explored in the movie Amadeus, where you have this complicated relationship between Mozart and... Um, Salieri. Salieri, mm. where Salieri's got a lot going for him, for sure, but he's no Mozart. And I kind of projected my own feelings about my own abilities into the song. And so I use Pollard and Paul McCartney as litmus tests for my own (laughs) worthiness, where Pollard's got it all. He writes great songs and he's relentless. He never stops. Paul McCartney is, I think, the most talented rock person of all time in an all-around sense. Like maybe Jimi Hendrix couldn't have played the piano or or the drums, but McCartney had everything, every tool, and he should have been pumping out great record after great record for decades. He could have, and he didn't. And so there's a whole... The, the, the sub-themes are about motivation and effort and natural talent 
and not so much natural talent, me. And uh, and I just found it to be fun to sort of go around and compare the work of uh, three major artists, Paul McCartney, Robert Pollard, and Gary Wallach. <laughs> but, you know, Bill's singing the second verse in which he's saying, eh, you messed it up, Gary, you're not really that good. And uh-huh. so it was an exercise in humility, too, I guess. Sure. I mean, I guess that completes the discography. The big question remaining, I guess, is there any possibility of future Big Dipper releases? Is this on the table, at least? Or I mean, I know there's probably no financial incentive. I would say no at this point. The three original members are scattered across the country. Also, I lost my job last year, and my wife and I sold our house which it makes it sound like it was a you know a big financial collapse it wasn't quite it's we were looking to downsize anyway but it, we I had a big house with a big basement and a beautiful recording studio in it and now all, most of that stuff is in storage and I don't have a place to record anymore there's no place to rent that you can afford in the Boston area anymore or in, even in the suburbs where I am so there's really nothing in the works Right now, I don't think Jeff is writing songs, and Bill has been working with him on those songs and with some recordings. So I've heard some of the stuff, and it's great. I had written 18 songs that I presented to Robert Pollard last year in the hope that it would be another Mars Classroom record. That's something we didn't talk about, but I did collaborate with Pollard before I wrote the song about him. <laughs> And um, I love that record so much. I, I, li- I like it more than anything I've ever done, except for maybe Heavens. And I wanted to do no- another record with him, so I presented him with a bunch of songs. But he's too busy with Guided by Voices, and he's he hasn't been doing collaborations lately anyway. He he says they're too hard, which I I refuse to believe anything's too hard for him. But I have to take him at his word. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, Jeff, Bill, and I are still dabbling a little bit. Every now and then something comes up about doing a show or shows, but I don't know. I don't see the need for it at this point. Maybe that'll change at some point. I have I have no idea. Okay. So, short of another wealthy sports bar owner rolling <laughs> out some fat stacks. <laughs> yeah, it would have to be a lot of money. I mean, I you know, like yeah. I hate to I hate to sound like someone who just wants to chase the dollars, but think about it. When you write a song and record it and, and put it out there for people, you're really bearing your soul and it's it's really hard work. And I think that we accomplished what we set out to accomplish. We wrote some unique songs We did them in a way that I think make us stand out from most, if not all, of our contemporaries. I'm not saying we're better or worse. I'm saying we're different. And a lot of the bands of the 80s that were putting out records on indie labels did not sound like us. They did not have the songwriting craftsmanship that we had. And they didn't have an ability to create interesting juxtapositions in their lyrics, which is what we always tried to do. We like to alternate between beautiful and scary, dark and light, terrifying and beautiful. To us, that's what all great art does. 
And that's not what most of the indie rock bands were doing in the 80s, frankly. I totally agree. I could go on and on about how happy I am that I discovered Big Dipper through my research on this podcast. I've listened to them a ton. I've pushed them on my friends and family. I've just really enjoyed Big Dipper's entire body of work. Awesome. I hope everyone listening heard some stuff that they like, and I hope you'll all check out some more Big Dipper. I think pretty much the entire catalog is available online. Gary, did you have anything that you wanted to plug? You mentioned the podcast earlier. Is there? Do you want to briefly tell people where they can listen to them? Or is... yeah, it seems like such a disconnect in a way, but it's it's kind of not. Yeah, so I'm working on a couple of podcasts uh, with Jewish themes. One about Chabad emissaries and their work in the world. The other is about people. Uh, from all walks of life who were not close to Judaism but are now. And I've really enjoyed those. They're great stories that I've been coming up with. I am looking to diversify, and I've come up with some ideas that I've pitched to various places. So I might be working on something music-related at some point, but um, right now I have more than enough keeping me busy, even though it's only paying for health care right now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Working really hard. Yeah. And so if anyone wants to hear those podcasts, uh, I assume they're available on wherever podcasts are found. Yeah, various platforms, uh, Lubavitch.com and TachlisMedia.com. Okay, great. Gary, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. And, um, you know, it's very insightful. I learned a lot. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate that. And I had a good time talking uh, about Big Dipper. Those were great questions. And they they brought up a lot of uh, stories that I, I hadn't thought about for a while. So thank you. You're welcome. That's the show. If anyone wants to get a hold of me, they can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. <laughs>